there was a Dutch raid on a small town in western Iowa. Come along now and learn the story of the ghost town of Calliope, Iowa. Welcome to Midwest Ghost Town. I'm Dan Klein, your host, your narrator, your history fanatic, and your ghost town storyteller. And really, that's the main point of Midwest Ghost Town. We want to explore and show the history of ghost towns, but most importantly, we want to share the stories of the abandoned places, especially the stories of the people that lived there. And that's where we're going today, back to 1872, along the banks of the Big Sioux River in Sioux County, Iowa, where we find ourselves immersed into the quaint and small village of Calliope, Iowa. But even in its small population of around 100, it's still holding a level of importance, being the first settlement and the county seat. But that's about to all change. Number one, the Dutch are coming. So we have this huge immigration happening and a migration of Dutch immigrants coming from Holland over to Iowa. And actually, if we even go a little further back, they really kind of started closer to the Baltimore area. They started immigrating across, some up into Michigan, some into Illinois, and of course we had a large fluctuation in 1847, about 800 actually, settling in the colony of what is now known as Pella, Iowa, the city of refuge. And so we start our story there really, because 22 years after they settled the Dutch colony in Pella, they sent a small handful of men um, or appointed them anyway, to go out and travel from Pella to northwest Iowa, searching for land for a new colony. And they found that land. And this is where the story gets really interesting, because the land that they first found was along the banks of the Little Sioux River in Cherokee County, or where the present-day town of Cherokee, Iowa is. That's where they really wanted to form their sister colony or their sister city. And when they went to go buy up the land and go there, word, of course, spread across in Sioux City, Iowa, and there was a bunch of investors that went up, bought up all the land in Cherokee before the Dutch arrived. And so they started to ask double and triple the price of what that land was. Luckily, they had a backup plan, and that backup plan was to settle in the eastern part of Sioux County and start a new colony named Orange City, Iowa, where eventually what happened was more and more Dutch immigrants began to swarm into the area, and by 1870, there was approximately 576 Dutch living in Orange City. And this is where things get messy. So here's what's happening at this time period. We know that the Dutch are overpowering in population. So it's the Dutch takeover. Eastern part of Sioux County, Iowa, the county begins to grow. And the philosophy of the Dutch was really colony before anything else. Basically, just kind of the philosophy of the Dutch sticking together. And what happens at this time period? We're approaching close to the year of 1870. Questions begin to arise about the county seat and the town of Calliope, Iowa. 
Calliope is really part of Haywarden, Iowa now. So if you're familiar with Haywarden, Iowa on the map, this is where Calliope is located, which is going to be the western part of the county. So you've got two extremes. You have the Dutch on the eastern side, and you have the non-Dutch on the western side. It is said that there was a rivalry that began to form between the two communities. It was rumored at that time that there was about $200,000 in debt and nothing to show for it in the village of about 100 people. Why is there a log cabin, for example, for a courthouse rather than a more extravagant one, especially when there was $200,000? In other words, where did the $200,000 go? It was believed that there was corruption in the men of the leadership. So the sentiment was that they didn't endure the cold winters, the harsh conditions, and all the problems back home with unfair taxes and so forth in Holland just to have the lies and the corruption continue in the form of the leadership in Calliope, Iowa. So they set out to basically take control of the county in the election process. And they won. So this is pretty exciting to see kind of what happens here, but it also gets a little messy. Now, obviously we know there's always two sides of the coin. There's always two sides of history. And when you're looking at this from a Dutch perspective, you're saying, well, it's overwhelmingly that, of course, the Dutch are going to win the election. They got numbers on their side. You can kind of see the side of the population in Calliope where they just kind of feel like they're getting outed. And that is essentially what's happening. But the other side of it is, if corruption and lies and everything were going on, that was not going to be allowed to persist, especially in the eyes of the Dutch. So the election process happened, and here's what happened. They won. And this is where things really begin to heat up. When four of the newly elected county officers went to take office, two were admitted, but two of them, were turned away and it's interesting to note they were turned away on grounds that their bonds were insufficient or in other words they were illegal and therefore too bad so sad because of their neglect the old officers would remain in their position for another term so here's what happened from there the two elected dutchmen came back a day or so later after going back to orange city and consulting with other leaders about what they should do they came back and let the town people and the leaders in Calliope and in the county that all the correct paperwork was set up and all this backing was done by leaders in Sioux City, Iowa. So they were all prepared to go ahead and move forward into their positions, but the government in Calliope refused. They refused them again and called the matter closed. But the Dutch decided at that point to take matters in their own hands. Ryan, this leads to part three, the raid. It was January 22nd, 1872. There was approximately two feet of snow on the ground, and it was negative 22 degrees. And there was a gathering that was happening at the schoolhouse over in Orange City. They had slept there the night before, many men who had came around the area and gathered to hear the news that the politicians that they had elected into the office were turned away yet again. And they weren't going to take it anymore, so they came in the hopes that they would go and take that government back. 
They had set up bunk beds in the schoolhouse, slept overnight, woke the next morning early, and had a meal of bread, meat, and coffee prepared. And all the while, as they were riling up, they were chanting the cry, On to Calliope. On to Calliope. They left Orange City early in the morning. It was still dark out. 55 slaves left. And as they were traveling 14 miles down the road, on their way down to Calliope, they met up with 25 other slaves from Rock Valley and Hull, Iowa, meeting them halfway on to Calliope, they cried. There was a swarm of approximately 200 Dutchmen and 80 slaves preparing to overwhelm the town. Now, when they came up on the hills of Calliope and they came down into the city, many of the town folks began to grow scared as they were basically outnumbered. There were so many Dutchmen in their wooden shoes, in slaves, they were rallying the battle cry to take the county seat. And many of the town folk fled across the Big Sioux River to hide into the woods in the Dakota Territory. At that point, the Sheriff Tom Dunham approached the mob. All right, what's the reason for all this? We came to make sure our newly elected officials were installed. If so, we'll be on our way. If not, well, I guess the county government is coming back to Orange City. <laughs> well, my wooded shoe friends, over my dead body. Well, Sheriff, you won't need bearing if you get in our way. You'll be plugged so full of lead that you'll sink like a rock through one of the fishing holes out on the ice on the Big Sioux. They persisted to go to the homes of the officials, came to the house of the ringleader, Rufus Stone. When they showed up to his home, they could hear Rufus yelling out the window, No gang, I wouldn't shoot Dutchmen. We'll run the county as long as I can help it. At that point, the Dutchman approached the porch and kicked in Rufus's door. They searched for Stone, only to find him dressed in a disguise, dressed as a woman, and trying to escape out the back window. Now see here, Mr. Stone, no disguise is going to fool us. Give us the key to the safe and we'll be on our way. I've got no key. You can't have it. I'm not going to give you any key to the safe. There's none key here. As Stone was trying to plead that there was no key, Mrs. Stone came from around the corner with a key in hand and gave it to the Dutchman. As they got the key, they left towards the courthouse. Of course, the door was locked, and so they ended up chopping it down with their axes. And once they burst through the door, they approached the safe and found that it was the wrong key. Heading back to the Stone residence, they found that the Stone family had escaped. So they went back to the courthouse, decided to stop and rest and have lunch. But at this point, the Dutchman and the Raiders, they were cold, hungry, and tired. You can imagine it was a cold day in January. You find out later that many of those men had suffered frostbite on their noses and their ears, their fingers and their toes. You can imagine they were wearing wooden shoes. Now, they said that the insulation on these wooden shoes were fantastic. I don't know about that. You do hear stories that they did have some issues with with that 
And there was a loss, actually. There was one young man who never did recover, and about a week later, he succumbed to a cold that he had gotten from the raid, and he died. So as these Dutchmen are resting in the courthouse, they're trying to figure out what to do now. They couldn't open the safe. They rest. They have lunch. They find a barrel of smoked ham, shoulders, and bacon. They make some coffee, and they eat lunch together. After this, they chop a hole in the wall of the cabin. They back a sleigh up to it, and they push the unopened safe into the sleigh. And at that point, they left for Orange City. Interesting side note, as they are leaving on the hillsides of Calliope, they are blasting their rifles and their guns in the air for two main reasons. One, to celebrate their victory of achieving what they came for, to steal the documents and take the county by force. And number two, to really warn the citizens of Calliope, don't follow. Don't follow us. And as they're leaving, there's another side story to all this. And there's really two ways that this story could go. Couldn't really find 100% accuracy of this and maybe it's more folklore. One of them was that the sleigh that held the safe, they were they were riding along the west branch of the Floyd River, and as they were heading down the river, the horses were trying to pull up the sleigh up the embankment, and because of the weight of the safe, they couldn't do it, so they were kind of stuck down there, and so they had to leave the safe behind and retrieve it the following morning. Now, another story I've heard, and I'm kind of thinking this probably is really what happened, that because of the rough terrain and the safe bouncing around in the sleigh as they were trying to go up the embankment, wherever they were at, whether it was the Floyd River or Crick, that the safe fell out of the back of the sleigh into the ice and into the Crick or the river. They ended up having to return the following day and retrieve the safe. There is one commonality in both those two stories, and that is that the safe fell through the ice, or at least it fell out, and they had to retrieve it the next day. So that much is probably true in the story. And this leads to the final point, point number four. And all the people say, so what? What's the whole point of this? What's the whole point of going into a historical story Um it's a fun story. It's a neat story. It's very fascinating, you know, to hear county seats being taken over and the way they kind of look at it. But what's the point of a ghost town story like this? Because Calliope today is considered a ghost town. You can visit it in Haywarden. It is a fantastic stop. If you get a chance to go visit Haywarden, go check out the village of Calliope. It is a recreated village of Calliope. So, it's not identical by any means. They still had the stagecoach building when I was visiting there and, of course, other buildings. I went and I walked the grounds. The buildings weren't open when I was there, so I'm hoping to return and give you a, a better video footage of Calliope. But if you're in Hayward and stop there, it is a very neat place to visit and learn more of the history of of not only Sioux County, but just you know ghost towns in general. But here are the points of this. Here is where I'm getting at. There's really three points. Number one, greed, corruption can spell trouble and doom for organizations, for towns. And number two, we learn from this story that change needed to happen. That change happened in the form of an election. 
and they basically took action to make that change happen. And number three, desperate times call for desperate measures. So in this case, a raid. And when we hear the story of ghost towns and we hear like what created them, we hear stories like, well, that was a railroad that caused that. Oh, the mine ran out of the minerals that they were going for. It became a ghost town. Or the people in this town lived close to another town and they moved over there because it was a more happening town with jobs and so forth. When we hear things like this, when we hear the history of ghost towns, and not that every ghost town story leads this direction, but I do know, you know, there are some times when I'm walking around town and it's considered a ghost town and I find out there's like five or ten people that are living in the area and they're saying, hey, we're not a ghost town. You're not population zero, that's for sure. But by definition, right, if you go by the 90% rule, looking at the overall population of where you have been through the years, you are considered a ghost town, especially if you're unincorporated, which they kind of look at and say, well, maybe in 10 years, since there's nothing here, it is likely that this could be a ghost town. Or sometimes we call them living ghost towns. They're actually ghost towns, but they just have a house or two, two people remaining in the town. And it's just a matter of time before it will become. Looking at small town America Main Street. This is a perfect example of this. You go down a Main Street in small town America and you see empty storefronts. And then you start to wonder in your head, is this town going to be there in the next 20, 50 years down the road? But at the same time as when we look at things like this, we ask ourselves, at what point do we sit back idly and watch things happen? Or at what point do we get out of our chairs and pick up the shovel and get to work? There are possibilities of revitalizing our towns. All things we can learn from a rivalry in 1872 and the raid of a county seat named Calliope, Iowa. Let's keep discussion on history of ghost towns alive. This is Midwest Ghost Town.